are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. We hope you get to know the boss. We hope you get to know you. Um, and the way to do that is after all this, at the end, um, introduce yourself to somebody. Now, I think the burden is on the people who've been around RUF. This isn't your first time. Make an effort to say hello. This is your first time. You can just sort of half wave and maybe turn to the people around you and say something like, hey, how's it going? And they can respond like they responded earlier, which is like nothing. Um, <laughs> that'll be a great conversation overall. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, anyway, another really good example of how to do this is International Lights. Okay, look, people. There's been some upcry. I've heard some murmuring about Vilgen in the pie. But I just have to say, look, Turkish techno, hummus, really expensive, really expensive coffee drinks, people. We're paying for ambiance there. It's international. It's on in Idaho. If you need directions, if you need directions uh, come talk to me or someone up front who's playing music or doing announcements. Uh, or if you need a ride, type this as well. Okay. So, as usual, get more involved in RUF. Join a Bible study. Come to a lunch. I'd especially recommend joining a Bible study. There's lots of options, okay? So don't tell me you don't have time in your schedule, okay? If you don't want to do it, that's fine. But it's the next step in getting involved in RUF. Um, okay. Last one. Halloween party, okay? How great is this? Do I even need to do a shameless plug here? Aren't we already shamelessly plugged about this? I mean, we've got some video action. Um, you know, that's not Carol's real costume. Spoiler alert, okay? So, she's not doing tie-dye and a hat. So, those of you who are hoping to wear that, you're welcome to wear it. Um, look, you know, who doesn't want to put on their costume finest and have some fun? I mean, trick or treat, you know, thriller dance, snack time. I mean, there are prizes. Did you guys know this? There are prizes for costumes. I know, I know. Our yep just goes all out, all out. Okay, head first, head first. Okay, down the slide of life. Okay, so this semester, announcement's over. Awkward segue beginning. Um, this semester... We're looking at the stories behind, um, look at the stories behind Elijah and Jonah. Okay, we're calling this series "Tracing the Heart of God." Tracing the Heart of God. First, we've looked at part one, okay, which was like the first eight nine weeks was the story of Jonah as told in the book of Jonah, um, and now we're into part two, which is the story of Elijah as told in the book of First Kings. Um, which is in the Bible. So we're exploring the Old Testament, that first three quarters of the Bible, um, and that we're continuing to do that. And some of you are like, Sid, look, give me some New Testament. Give me something newer. Give me something fresher. Give me something with less dust on it, okay? I need, I need relevance. I mean, these are Old Testament stories after all, right? Um, but let me tell you a little bit about why we're doing what we're doing. These are stories about guys like us that direct us to the God of the universe. These are ancient stories, but they give us a beautiful blueprint, a beautiful blueprint of the heart of God and how it works. Okay? So, with that in mind, we're beginning our discussion of Elijah, as told in the book of 1 Kings. We're looking at one episode. Elijah's life and times in 1 Kings and 2 Kings is pretty long and immense. So we're just going to look at one episode, um, which I think is an important one. But before I do, let's talk about Elijah, okay? 
I don't know if you noticed the title of my sermon. Those were the days of Elijah. Okay, these are not the days of Elijah. Sorry. Okay, we're moving on. But those were the days of Elijah. Who's this Elijah fellow? Okay. Jesus is like, everyone comes to Jesus and goes, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? And he keeps going, no, thank you, though. No, thank you, though. And he actually says the new Elijah, not the literal, physical, resurrected Elijah, the Elijah who never died. That's not, it's not exactly that. But he said John the Baptist performs the function of the new Elijah. That is, he prepares the way for a greater prophet. That is Jesus. Jesus is the new Elisha. So, don't get confused. Elijah with a J, Elisha with a sh. Okay? A sage. Okay? So, um, anyway, the greater prophet who is also God, which is Jesus. Okay, so wonderful opportunity to look at up close personal take on Elijah. Okay? And really, this is to understand the Bible better. He's throughout the Bible referenced. Okay? New Testament, Old Testament. So, I'm helping you with Bible trivia. I'm just trying, people. Tireless efforts up here to help you with Bible trivia with this Elijah story. But I hope it gets us beyond Bible knowledge, okay? Like the story of Jonah, which many of you unpacked with me, this hopefully will also, Elijah's story tells us, that God is different than we think he is. God is different than we think he is. And if we learn one thing from Elijah's life, we learn that God's love constantly surprises us. God's love constantly surprises us into being better people. Okay. Does anyone hear a crackle? Yeah, I'll just try to ignore that. I feel like someone's what? There's a switch on the end. This is going to be awesome. Which switch? Behind. Behind. It's one, one switch. Can I get a warmer, colder? Hotter. Hotter. Yeah, tip it. Oh, that's so much better. I'm sorry. It was like a giant Rice Krispies bowl was behind my head. Okay. So we learned from Elijah that God's love is constantly surprising us into being better people. Okay, that's what I was saying before the Rice Krispie incident. Okay, so you're thoroughly convinced that we need to talk about this. I get it, you're sold, hook, line, and sinker. Turn to your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Kings chapter 18. Okay, right in the middle of your Bible, probably. Maybe a little bit before the middle. Um, or you can just look in your handy-dandy green sheet um, on the inside of the right-hand page. Okay? So, if you're looking in the Bible, if you're, if you're taking that plunge, it's after First and Second Samuel, before Second Kings, First Kings, then Second Kings, and Kings is before First and Second Chronicles. All right. If you want to sing a song, that's okay. No one's going to laugh at you. Um, if you need to know what the order of the books of the Bible are, we're reading from the English Standard Version, which is a kind of a translation, English translation of the Hebrew text. So, anyway, would you stand for the reading of Scripture? First Kings, chapter 18, verses 17 through 29. When Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time, saw Elijah the prophet, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, that is Elijah, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, 
But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Now prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. And, all, and then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal, from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there's no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is thinking a lot, musing, or he is relieving himself, going to the bathroom. Or he is on a journey, and perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, about 3 p.m. late afternoon. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Friends, the heavens and earth will pass away before one letter, one letter of the word of God becomes void. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful uh, for this opportunity to come together to study your word. Um, I pray that uh, you would be with the study, that the word would have hands and feet in our lives, that we, it would change the way that we see you, O oh Father, that changed the way that we see the other things, the bales in our lives. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us your ways, teach us the path of your righteousness, teach us, O oh Father, um, how to love better out of the fact that we're loved so, so very well and so very tenderly in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray these things um, knowing that you're a God who listens to prayer, a God who cares about this moment, um, and Lord, we pray that in your precious Son, Jesus' name, who's made this moment of prayer possible, that we could enter before your throne and ask for things like a son or a daughter to his or her father. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. You can be seated. <coughs> okay. So, picture this with me, okay? Summer after my freshman year, yeah. summer after my freshman year, and I worked at this thing called the Lowe's Motor Speedway in North Carolina. Okay, does anyone know what a motor speedway is? Okay, that means I worked about a month, roughly a couple weeks, I don't know, somewhere around a month, at a NASCAR stadium. Okay, now, I know, shocker, you guys look at me and say, there's no way. Okay, yes, that's right, the freshman me, a slightly more fit version, and a slightly preppier version, too, I was fond of a collar for every occasion, okay? So that's who I was, was working at a 150,000 spectacle, 150,000 person spectacle of metal bleachers, burning rubber, beer, corn dogs, father and son drivers, senior and junior, and cars painted Home Depot orange and painted like an M&M wrapper. Yes, that was me. That was it. Um, and... I just want to, I want to kind of take away any coolness that I had, just for a second. I didn't work in the pits. I wasn't like a mechanic. I wasn't, like, people didn't come to me, like, when their car was on fire, and I took the extinguisher and put it out, and, like, or changed the carburetor. That's not what I did, okay? I worked concessions, stocking trucks, 
cleaning tables and selling anything possible that could be fried. That's what I sold. Okay? And aside from a few races, the majority of my time was spent working during the weekdays for a thing called Finish Line Products. Finish Line Products uh, was a company that set up and cleaned up the speedway between different events. So my average day looked like this. I clocked in, okay? And then I sat around for a few hours waiting for them to tell me what to do. Then they told me something to do, and it took about 30 minutes as I cleaned a couple of tables on the other side of the stadium. And then I would come back, and then they would send me out to do it again. Not because the tables weren't clean, but because they had nothing else for me to do until noon. And they wanted a 30-minute job to last the entire morning. So, this is my situation. This made lunch extremely exciting. Okay? A highlight of my day. Okay? And I'll never forget the first lunch in the job. There I was. Okay? Me. Uh, new guy. And a few of the guys who had been around the block for a while at the NASCAR scene decided to take me out to lunch. And I thought, great. We're going to go to Chili's. We're going to go fast food, maybe. And I knew something was up when they got in the golf cart. Okay? We, weren't, we didn't get in the car. And I was like, okay. Kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then we drove across the parking lot, through, like, into and out of a ditch, somehow, this amazing golf cart. And then we saddled up to a Texaco gas station. Okay? And at the Texaco gas station, we all got out, and I just followed their lead. We grabbed one of those hot dogs that had been on the rollers for about a month. Okay, we got some semi-solid queso. Put that thing on there. Okay, clump, clump. And then... Uh, this was the, the highlight. They said, you can get any bag of chips you want, Sid. Any. <laughs> this entire place. So there I was. I got my bag of chips. Uh, what a selling point for the Texaco. And we piled back into the golf cart, and we went to go eat lunch at the headquarters, okay, with all the other guys. Okay. So there we were eating lunch. Okay, again, my hot dog consisting of drizzled queso. And everybody was talking about the race coming up, the big, uh, the big race on Saturday. And Perry, a manager, okay, who's eating this like thing of fried fish that's from the refrigerator, okay? And he's got these teeth that are really impossible to describe, but it's really just straggly, craggly, and I couldn't, I really couldn't keep my eyes off of them, so it was very hard to keep a conversation. Um, and he's working with this fried fish with bones in it, okay, just, you know, like, just, I don't know, it was amazing to watch. Um, anyway, Perry, this guy, okay, asks Brett, this other guy, and Brett, by the way, was the resident grease monkey, Okay, he literally cleaned the grease out of the grills, the giant sort of huge grills that they, they grilled things on, the things that I didn't sell because I sold the fried stuff. Um, and he had these epic handlebar, must, handlebar sideburns, just epic, right to the corners of his mouth almost. It was beautiful. Um, and then the, the beautiful goatee, right, the mashed, it was sort of like this lion color. Anyway, so... <laughs> anyway, so Perry, Perry asks uh, this guy... Brett, okay, he says, what are you doing for the big race on Saturday? And Brett says, okay, here's what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to go and I'm going to borrow my friend's camper. I'm going to get a whole cooler full of beer. And I'm going to sit out in the RV section of the stadium and watch the race on TV, okay? Now, I really didn't think much of this. I kind of thought, I've heard that a lot of people have been parking in this parking lot for RVs for all week. So I figured in like weeks before even, so I figured a lot of people were doing this, okay? And so I just shrugged and went back to my queso dog, okay? But Perry wouldn't let it go. Perry thought, this is my chance. This is my chance for a zinger, okay? 
And so Perry, you've got a picture of Perry with me. I kid you not, this is the description of Perry. He had a sincere mullet. Sincere, okay? <laughs> like, not ironic, sincere. It was, it was a Hollywood flat top in every sense of the word. Okay, so party in the back, and then gelled flat top business in the front, delicately crowned with a pair of Oakleys, just sort of like floating like in midair. <laughs> okay, so that's him, okay? Perry with the mullet, gnawing with his craggly teeth this piece of fried fish, mid-gnaw, looks over to Brett and asks this question. This question. What are you? Some kind of redneck? <laughs> story. True story. What are you? Some kind of redneck. All I could do was not laugh in surprise and lose my job. And I didn't want to spit my gas station treat all over the room, so I just tried to keep it together. Okay. So I get that this story is like ridiculous, okay, on the scale of things. That's really unfair to Perry and the good guys I worked with, okay? So they were really good guys, but let's be honest, they were rednecks, okay? Rednecks. And there, was a, there were really um, a lot of good things about them. They fixed a lot of great things, and that's why I didn't really have much to do, because I had no ability to fix and still don't have ability to fix things. So I'm not saying that they're bad or worse um, than I was. I'm just saying it's amazing that these guys didn't realize that they were rednecks, okay? I, I just couldn't believe it. And here's where things get honest for us. We're a lot more like Perry than we realize. Okay? We read a passage like this one in 1 Kings and we think, fools, fools. How could Ahab blame Elijah and how could Israel chase after Baal as God? Okay? How is that possible? But I think we're so unaware of our own hearts that we don't realize we're chasing after other gods too. Okay? We're like Perry. We don't get it. Sure, look, I know this. We don't bow down to metal statues, okay? Metal statues of a man with chiseled abs and a lightning bolt spear, which apparently is what Baal looks like, okay? In statues. Chiseled abs are important when you're an ancient god. Lots of crunches. Um, but what do you do, what do I do, when life sometimes feels difficult, so difficult, so stressful, and we feel so weak, so inadequate, and so unable to even make a dent in our problems. What do we do then? Where do we turn those moments in life when we feel like pulling the blankets over our heads, finding a stuffed animal to hug, sucking our thumbs, and really honestly moving into the fetal position, knees to chest, curled position in like a ball. Okay, that's an exaggeration. Most of you probably don't go into that position very often, okay? But the point is, what do you do in those moments? Where do you turn? What do you lean on? What do you rely on? Okay? Or perhaps we need to think about what we attribute our success to. What tricks do we rely on to keep people liking us? Okay. Or rather, what things do we feel like we have to do for school to continue to go well? Where are we running to? I mean, look at my life. Every time I preach a good sermon, I find myself the next week trying to do everything I did the first week. I sit there and like every exact way I prepared, the same posture, the same seat, the same place to write the sermon, the same trying to say the exact same prayer even before the sermon, so that somehow by like magic, Harry Potter-esque, something will happen that happened last week. That's me trusting in something other than God. How about you? What does that look like for you? The passage tonight, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 29 exposes our self-ignorance 
It gets to the heart of the ways that we try to trust other gods, something other than God. And this we see exactly what idolatry looks like in the acts of Ahab, then Israel, and then the Baal prophets. Here's what I don't want you to take away from the text, okay? This isn't like, be more like Elijah. So when someone challenges your faith, you say, okay, get a cow, get a cow. Or here we go, okay? If your pile of sticks with a cow burns and mine doesn't, then you're right. And if mine does and yours doesn't, then you're wrong. That's not what we're taking away from this passage. What we're taking away from this passage is that this is what idolatry looks like. With Ahab, with Israel, and then with all the Baal prophets. And here's what idolatry looks like in our lives. When life feels out of control, we try to control it. We try to manage it with something. Whatever we're managing it with, that something, that anything, is an idol. And it looks a lot more like Baal than we care to admit. But God loves his people even in our self, our lack of self-awareness and our bad management skills. Okay? That's why he shows us this unmistakable truth in this passage in 1 Kings 18, verses 17 to 29. And this is, the, this is the truth. There's no other God but the Lord God, and his sacrifice is enough for us. There's no other God but the Lord God, and his sacrifice is enough for us. Therefore, let's follow him. Let's follow him, even and especially when life is tough. Okay? There's no other God but the Lord God, and his sacrifice is enough for us. Therefore, let's follow him even and especially when life's tough. Okay? It's a simple truth, but I hopefully we'll see it in a new way. Again, we're all parried in some way or another, okay? not seeing ourselves well. We see this in the passage in three distinct scenes. Verses 17 through 19, we see Elijah encounter Ahab. And in second, verses 20 through 25, we see God, the Lord God, contest Baal. And then third, in verses 26 through 29, we see there's no fire on the altar, and that silences Baal's prophets. So we've got verses 17 through 19, the encounter, verses 20 through 25, the contest, verses 26 through 29, the silence. Okay, that's how the passage breaks down. So let's look at Ahab and Elijah in verses 17, 18, and 19. Okay, that first paragraph. Verses 17 through 19 ask us a simple question. What's the trouble? What's the trouble in the scene? What's the trouble going on? And it tells us an answer. The trouble is idolatry. Following other bales. Following the bales. Okay? We see this question answered first in Ahab's accusation of Elijah in verse 17. Okay? There, King Ahab calls out to the prophet Elijah. Okay? He says this. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Okay. Accusation number one. Okay. Why do you think Ahab says that? You guys have no context. We're like right in the middle of 1 Kings 18. But if you look back to 1 Kings 17, chapter, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah there tells Ahab this. There shall be neither dew nor rain the, these years except by my word. There's no rain, no dew, except by my word. Okay. So can you fault Ahab for saying, look, Elijah, say the word. Drop the rain. Okay? Be a rainmaker. Okay? Do it. Why not? Why make all of Israel suffer the three-year drought that we're in? But look at verse 18, where we see Elijah's response. Okay? I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments 
of the Lord and follow the Baals. Okay? In other words, he's saying, look, I'm not the reason there's no rain, Ahab. You are. You're the reason. The drought isn't arbitrary. It's caused by your sin, your wickedness. And the narrator of 1 Kings gives us a little glimpse into how Ahab and his royal house, the house of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's a quotation from 1 Kings 16.30. Okay? He did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. By the way, that's a big deal. Okay? He's in the northern kingdom. By the, for those of you who aren't super familiar with kings, that's the kingdom that goes wrong pretty quickly. So he's doing more evil than anyone before him. He's doing more wrong than anyone else. And his evil is simply this. He's worshiping Baal as God instead of the Lord God of Israel. That is, Ahab and his family are committing adultery. They committed adultery. Idolatry. Okay. They might have been doing that too. <laughs> Idolatry. Okay. And this false worship, this false worship, led to a drought in all of Israel. Okay. That's what happened. This is that's the cause and effect. The, the, the idolatry, not adultery. Idolatry leads to a drought for three years. Okay. Not because of Elijah coming in and saying the facts. But I can picture it now. After this time, someone comes up to me sitting and goes, Sid, I'm really, really nervous. I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. Because you guys are thinking about the sermon. I know it right now. And I go, why is that, random student? And random student says, Sid, um, I'm just not sure where America's president is in terms of following God. I just don't know where his heart is. And, you know, maybe, just maybe, he's not following God. And he's going to cause a drought for three years in America. Do you know what I tell that student? You know what I tell you? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Okay? Let it go. What? What? How can I say that? How can I not like care about Obama's heart and what he follows and whether he follows Jesus or not? That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is our droughts and rains aren't tied to Obama's love of Jesus. Okay? The things that happen in our weather patterns are not tied to Obama's love of Jesus. And let me tell you why. This is really important when you read the Old Testament. P.S., by the way, let me put a little P.S. postscript there. Hurricane Katrina was not caused by a homosexual gay rights parade. It wasn't. Some people said that in the Christian community. They lied. That's not true. Let's move on. Okay? So, here's why. The king of Israel and the nation of Israel had made an historical agreement. They had made an oath, a covenant with the Lord himself. Okay, the Lord God. If Israel, this is what the covenant said, if Israel led by the king, whoever the king would be, okay, if Israel led by the king obeyed the Lord and everything, the land would have prosperity. But if Israel led by the king disobeyed the Lord, the land would have famine, the land would have warfare, the land would have... Um, disease, and it would have da 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 drought. Okay? Drought. So this was what's called a covenant curse. Okay? It's an agreement. When you don't hold up your end of the bargain, that's what happens in the Old Testament. Okay? For Israel. And we read about this, if you're interested, Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29. 28 is where the curses are laid out. 29 is where the historical enactment of those, of those promises are made, of that covenant is made. Remade actually because it's made even earlier than that. So let me get let me tell you this, okay? I know you guys are also worried about this. The United States has not made a covenant as a people with God. 
It just hasn't happened. That didn't happen. We didn't have a moment between two mountains shouting back and forth curses and, and blessings. That didn't happen. Okay? But it did happen with Israel. Okay? Furthermore, our president does not speak and act for us spiritually. That's just not the reality. Obama is not my spiritual leader, and neither was George W. Bush. Okay? Thankfully. I'm both here. Okay? This is unlike King Ahab, who did speak and did act for the people of God. Okay? Here's what he did. He led them into Baal worship. Baal worship was from the royal courts downward. Okay? And he said, this is what you should worship, because I'm your king. Do you see the difference of what's going on there? Hopefully. If you want to talk more about that, there's always international lights. Okay. Um, moving on. So Israel, I'm sorry, so Elijah reminds Ahab of this covenant, okay, that's been made. He says, look, the drought's because you've committed idolatry. And so Ahab, verse 19, agrees to, sorry, the proposal of Elijah in verse 19, Ahab agrees in verse 20 to let a contest show the Israelites and Ahab just how foolish or not foolish they are. Okay? So there's a contest that's proposed in verse 19, and in verses 20 and following, Ahab agrees. Okay, scene two, next scene. Okay, we went through scene one, we're now in scene two. Next half paragraph or so. Okay, it's a long next paragraph. So we see the contest, verses 20 through 25. And here's the question that this passage is asking. Who's really God? Who's really God? Okay. Is it the fertility god Baal? Or is it the Lord God of the Bible? Who's really God? And this scene tells us clearly the Lord God is the real God. Okay? That's what this scene is about. And I, I hope you understand this, that God through Elijah wanted to make it crystal clear. Crystal clear it was a mistake to leave God for Baal. Because Baal is not God. He's not a God. He's not the God. He's a figment of human imagination. Okay. We see this intention in verse 21, and I'm going to read it for you again. It says, How long, Elijah calls out the people of Israel and says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. It's pretty simple, right? Choose your, choose your God. I like the way the original language, the Hebrew, expresses this verse. It's actually really, really poetic. It's a beautiful image. We have here, how long will you go limping between two different crutches? How long will you go limping between two different crutches? Is literally what the Hebrew says. And I think this is a powerful image. Wherever you are with Jesus, your poorly aimed selfishness, my poorly aimed selfishness, has crushed our feet. and has made us made it very, very hard for us to do anything but hobble in this life. And all we can do is to hobble to whatever will support us. And that's what life is like. Life is like hobbling to different things. And that's why idolatry exists. And really, that's what worship is all about. What can support us? What can be our ultimate concern? What do we think about when we wake up? What do we think about when we go to, not, go to bed at night? What is it that we would feel like we would die without? What makes us angry when it's taken away from us? What makes us fearful that we'll never get it? What gives us drive and determination? That's the question of idolatry. That's the question of what you worship. And that's the question of hobbling on bruised and broken feet 
to and from different crutches. So let me so let me just sort of say, look, the people who say religion is a crutch, they're partially right. Okay? Straight up. I don't think Christianity is a crutch, but I certainly think God is a crutch. I think Jesus is a crutch. And I say, fine, I suppose it's true. But I also think the reason that people say that in such a snide way is because they don't understand their feet are broken. And so a crutch seems totally useless if you think you're fine. Anyway, um, so there's a question here in verse 21, not just for the Israelites gathered at Mount Carmel. And by the way, they don't answer the question, which I think is really interesting. Okay? As opposed to when Joshua launches the question, whose house, as for me and my house, will serve the Lord, everyone else says, yeah, me too. Here everyone's like, uh, let's wait and see. Okay? And so I think this question is not just for the Israelite audience, that original audience. It's also for us as we listen to 1 Kings 18. Okay? Again, wherever you are with Jesus, at whatever place of belief, chances are good that you and me, you and I, are limping between Jesus and something else. We're limping between Jesus and something else that we think is way, way, way too important. That thing ceases to be a thing and starts to become a god. Okay? It's a relationship. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's a girlfriend. Maybe it's a boyfriend. That becomes more than a relationship. It becomes more than a boy or a girl. It becomes an idol. It becomes a god. Or maybe it's a grade that becomes more than a grade. It's a performance and a success that becomes more than a performance and more than a success. And that becomes a god, an idol. Or maybe it's this intimacy that you've discovered. It's an emotional intimacy of conversation. Maybe it's a physical intimacy of sex. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's hooking up. Maybe it's having sex. And that becomes what you live for. That becomes more than what it's supposed to be. More than just an intimacy. And that becomes a god. Okay? So here are some helpful diagnosis questions that we can think through and maybe some answers that will help us as we think about what it means to be limping back and forth between two crutches. Okay? Now, I'm talking about we. I mean we, you and I. Okay? Do our thoughts lean on him or her? Or do our thoughts lean on God? Okay? And let me just put this clearly, and I think the verse puts this clearly, he or she cannot support your weight. They just can't. Right? So the minute you start weighing, you start leaning on them with your broken feet, treating them like a crutch, they have broken feet too. And eventually they're going to collapse with the weight or they're going to shrug you off. You've got to put your full weight on Jesus. Okay? But here's another question. Do you, do I, do we hop to the next fleeting chance for praise? Or do we hop to praise God? Are we hopping to the next fleeting chance for our praise? Or do we hop to please God, hop to praise God? And let's look, real honest candor here, okay? I hop to praise. That's what I'm wired for. That's what I do. And so every, every time I go and I like ask questions so I can get a nice compliment, and then when I get it, I just feel embarrassed. Because ultimately, that's not satisfying. And we all know that when we hop to those things, what ultimately is satisfying is Jesus Christ and him alone. That's the crutch that can support your weight. That's the crutch that doesn't have broken feet. That's the crutch that satisfies and doesn't embarrass us with who we are. All right, verses 22 
another great segue. Verses 22 and 25, okay, those verses right there at the end of verse 21, they set the ground rules fully in favor of Baal. You should know this, okay? Mount Carmel is the ultimate home field advantage as a worship site for Baal, okay? That's where he's premierly worshipped. It's in the border of Phoenicia where the Baal cult started, okay? They get to choose the ox, the, 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 the bull, okay? They, get, they have 450 people to one person. They've got numbers. And the test of who God really is is fire, okay? And by, by the way, Baal is a storm god who wields lightning bolts. He's called the Lord of Fire. Okay? So you've got to understand this is a deck stacked completely in Baal's favor. This test, uh, and then we finally see in verses 26 through 30 that they have all day. They have from morning till noon, they take a break, and then they get back up and they keep doing it all the way until the end of the afternoon. Okay? They have all day. They have all the advantages. And this is so the Lord God can make it very clear to everyone there and to us too that he's in charge. He's in charge of the rain. He's in charge of fire. He's in charge of nature. He's in charge of creation. And not Baal, the storm god, who brings rain and fire, supposedly. This is also so that none of the followers of Baal, none of the Israelites can cry foul. Okay? We're not going to have a contested election here. This is how the Lord will prove that Baal is not real. That he's not God. So that any rain, or any fire for that matter, that comes afterwards, when this drought is lifted, no one can say this is Baal's doing. Because Baal has been disproved once and for all. That's the point of this contest. That's why the, the odds are stacked that way. Okay? And so, finally, we come to the end of, the, end of our, our section. Okay? Final scene, verses 26 through 30. Okay? 26 through 30. And their silence. Their deafening silence. These verses ask us, who can help us and they tell us the Lord God alone can help us. That's the only person that can help us. That's the only God that is God. So verses 26 through 30 show us the Lord God saves through the silence of Baal. Look, I mean, look at this passage with me. 450 grown men getting very, very serious. Okay? Very serious. They plead, they beg, they hop, and they dance for hours. Okay? But nothing happens. Baal doesn't show up. Then things get really desperate after noon. Okay? And these same prophets and priests, quote-unquote, cut themselves, the blood gushing out upon them. But this does not bring Baal. That does not show up. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. We see that in verse 29. It's a strike quote. Look, the Baal prophets tried everything to control life and to control God. They did everything that was right. They said the right words. They did the right actions. And then when that didn't work, they did everything that was quote-unquote wrong. They raved, that is, they yelled at Baal, and then they cut themselves, mutilating their flesh. And this is a picture of what false worship, idolatry, looks like. It's a very graphic picture. It looks like trying to do all the right things, doing what's expected, and then when that doesn't work, redoubling your efforts, just to get your, your prayers answered that aren't answered, to get people to like you, to like me, and to get the A. Whatever it takes to get the A. To get the success. And when these right things don't work, we try all the wrong things. Trying rebellion and self-destruction. To tell ourselves that God is cruel and doesn't care. To get a different crowd to like us. And honestly, just to feel anything whatsoever. In his autobiography, Andre Agassi, tennis star, 
the wearer of incredible long hair and denim jeans, uh, who played tennis at the same time. Um, he tells a story about his life. It's called Open. Okay, it came out a few years ago. Throughout his entire childhood, Agassiz was forced to hit thousands upon thousands of tennis balls a day, and, then, and after that, to do hundreds and hundreds of crunches and push-ups. Okay? His life from toddler all the way through teenage years to the circuit of tennis was full of tennis. That's it. And here's how Agassiz describes the struggle to, to be himself, to be happy. And I want you to hear what idolatry looks like and feels like. Because he's in it. And he talks about it honestly. During my childhood, I resented the prison of tennis. It brought an unbearable burden of performance I couldn't live with. The misery was that I couldn't walk away from tennis. That's the misery. The burden just made me want to work harder, which made me resent tennis even more than I already did. I was stuck in my own little hell with no way out. As much as I hated tennis, I came to realize it was all that I was. The harder I worked, the worse it got. The drug use started when I came to the painful realization that I didn't hate so much tennis as I hated myself. I had no me apart from the sport I hated and exhausted my life with. Andre Agassiz, a success. Talking about being enslaved to the prison of tennis. Like the prophets of Baal, Agassiz threw himself into the right quote-unquote thing of tennis. To get happy, he says the harder he worked, the worse he got. And then Agassiz threw himself into the wrong things of drugs. Again, to get happy. And then he says, I came to the painful realization that I didn't so much hate tennis as I hated myself. But the problem for Agassiz, the problem for us, perhaps problem for the 450 grown man at Mount Carmel in our passage is that you and I and they are worshiping the wrong things. It doesn't matter what you or I do. Because it's all towards the wrong direction. Do you understand that? Baal was a man-made fiction, and this is what Elijah gets out in verse 27. He's a man-made fiction, okay? Man-made fiction. Lost in his thoughts. He goes to the bathroom. He travels out of town for business. And he falls asleep on the job. And this is, why is that important? Because he's a human invention who looks like humans. He does what humans do. Because he's controllable. Because he's relatable. Because he, we understand him. So, of course, this, this creation of men's dreams is going to fulfill all the dreams that men have. He's not going to argue with you. He's not going to say things you disagree with. He's not going to do things that aren't on your timetable. And that's what the Lord God promises to do at times. But Baal doesn't exist, and that's the problem. So it doesn't matter how much you pray, how well you act, or how much self-sacrifice you perform. And likewise, we won't be happy if we worship happiness. We won't. No matter how hard and how many different ways we try to get happiness. Because happiness can't give us happiness. Do you know who can give us happiness? The Lord. The Lord gives happiness. Just like he gives rain. That's the point of our, of our verse, our chapter, of our passage. So we worship him, that's the call, in times of drought and in times of rain. In times of unhappiness and times of happiness. Okay? And I'm wanting to close here, okay? My guess is that many of you feel like Agassiz or these prophets at the end of the day. Don't we? If we're honest, life feels difficult and stressful at times, and we feel weak, inadequate, and unable to make even a dent in life and our problems. 
And it feels like this when we want, when we get what we want, and it doesn't satisfy. And it feels like this when we don't get what we want, and we're frustrated. And this is why we turn to idols. And this is why we're in idolatry. That's the reality. But hear hear the beautiful message of the gospel. We've just gotten a real wake-up call. But hear the call that's louder than that. God tells us, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The very problem that we think we have, being weak, is the very place that God works. How does he work? How is that promise fulfilled? Because Jesus Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. Unlike this false sacrifice, he shows up. He shows up, God shows up, in Christ Jesus. There was an altar for all Israel to see outside of Jerusalem. There was an offering, the sacrifice slain. And that sacrifice slain was not a bull. It was Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And God lit the fuse of his anger, and he poured out his fiery wrath upon his Son. Jesus paid the price for our idolatry. He paid, he paid the price for our right and wrong sins towards something that we can't possibly get. He paid the price for the other gods that we chase after. And in return, listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 10, we heard it earlier. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, not a repeat performance, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here's what it means. If you're being, if you believe in Jesus, if you kick that other crutch aside and lean headlong into the crutch of Christ, if you do those things, God promises to show up in the midst of your life, even when you're doing it with broken feet, even when sin makes you hobble. He promises to make the power of peace rest upon you in the very, very places, the very spots where we're most weak and wounded. There is a solution for weak hearts and uncontrollable lives. Where we all live, the solution is Jesus Christ. Listen to this. His grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. That is enough. His grace is enough for all of us. For all of us who believe. And even, and especially, for those of us in this room. Would you pray again with me? Father, um, I thank you for this message. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to preach on idolatry, um, but here we are. And I thank you that you spoke through your word and that it hurts, but that there is a beautiful healing. By your stripes we are healed, Father. Your son Jesus promises that. He is, a, he is slain for us. And I know that seems bloody and I know that seems hard, but that's real. That's a reality that we can bank on. That's a crotch that we can lean all of our weight upon that still stands at the end of the day. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts, all the people in this room, I pray, wherever we are with Jesus, to lean on that crotch, to lean on Jesus, to go headlong into the crotch of Christ. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.